0: In our lesson this morning, we talked about parenting and we talked about uh, childrening and uh, we talked about uh, kind of the, the roles and the responsibilities that parents and children have towards one another as seen through uh, the lens of Jesus and, and how he impacts the way we think about that relationship. One of the things that's interesting, uh, you can see this when you talk about our marriage lesson or you can see this when you talk about um, uh, fathers and sons and, and, and parents, a lot of the family imagery that is used when we talk about family is also used when we talk about our relationship with God. Uh, God is spoken of as, as a husband uh, to Israel, or Jesus is spoken of as the husband to the church in Ephesians 5. Uh, you have uh, God spoken of as our Father, who uh, created us, who gave us life, and, and who also... Uh, treats us like a father, and sometimes that means, uh, that he lovingly gives good gifts to us. You know, Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when he's describing the, the, the blessing of prayer, he likens it to the relationship between a father and a son. And he says, you know, how many of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a scorpion? Or if he asked, you know, for an egg, would give him something worthless? Like, wh- how, how many of you care so little about your children that you would, ignore them or give them something that they don't need when they're asking you for help well if you who are evil and basically what i think he's saying is if sinful human parents love enough to try to bless their children well how much more will a perfect holy gracious and loving god who never sins and who doesn't have that vindictive spirit how much more will he try to bless those who ask of him When God sees you as his children, God wants to bless his children. God wants to take care of them. God wants to hear from them. So prayer is a really important part of that relationship. But the the logic that Jesus is using there is that God is to us like a father. And that's that's imagery that you'll see quite a bit used in the Bible. Uh, What I wanted to do in the lesson tonight was look at a passage from the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And Hosea chapter eleven is uh, uh, it's a beautiful chapter, and, and it's in it's in one of the minor prophets. So what that means, it's a chapter we know very little about. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time in the minor prophets, and uh, so there are some of the, some of the most beautiful and some of the most heart wrenching uh, stories that you can read or, or passages. They come from the minor prophets or even the major prophets, and uh, and a lot of times we don't spend a lot of time with them. But I wanted to spend time with Hosea eleven. <clears throat> Hosea combines the two images that we just started off talking this about tonight. Uh, the first couple of chapters present God as a husband to Israel uh, through a marriage that Hosea has to uh, a harlot whose name is Gomer. And uh, she continually cheats on him, and yet he extends grace to her. And the idea is that God is like a husband married to Israel, yet Israel keeps going after other husbands, keeps going after other gods. Um, and, and so that's the foundational image for the book of Hosea. But the image is also used when you get to chapter 11 of God being a father towards Israel, who's a rebellious child. And if you read through the whole book of Hosea and you were to try to boil down what what is the problem that Israel is having with God, What does it all stem from? There's a recurring word that occurs over and over again. Um, It is the word yada in Hebrew. It's the word for knowledge. And the problem is that they have no knowledge of God. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, There is no justice, righteousness, or knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 6. Like It's used over and over that the children of Israel have forgotten God. He has blessed them. He has been there for them. He has given them the land. He has given them a victory over their enemies. And yet once they have everything they need, they don't think about him anymore. They forget about him. And when they have problems, they go after other gods. When there's an enemy that they're concerned about, like Assyria is a big enemy in this book, they go after other nations instead of going to their god. And all of that stems, all the sins that you read about in Hosea, they stem from they forgot who God was. Because if you think about it, if you really know God, not just know some facts about him. They do know facts about God. They do know his name. They occasionally even call to him. Uh, But they don't truly experientially know him. They don't have a relationship with him. He is to them a name among other names. And sure, he's a god, so we should say good things about him. We should, we should do the whole sacrifice stuff, and we should make sure that we worship. But he isn't impacting their daily lives. And if you forget who God is, then all of a sudden you might, you, you might not see how foolish it is to turn to idolatry. Like if you really think that when you're in trouble, the piece of wood or stone that you just made is just as helpful as the God who created the universe, then that means you've forgotten who God is. Uh, If you really think that the gods of the nations around you or the the traditional gods from where you're from, if those are going to help you as much as Yahweh, then you don't really know Yahweh. If you think he can be replaced at all, That's evidence that you don't know him, that you have forgotten him. Uh, Their problem with idolatry stems from the fact that they forgot the unique glory, unparalleled might and majesty of the God of Israel. And then their other problem that's mentioned in, in Hosea is that they're going after other nations for help. So when they have a, an enemy they're concerned about, they're trying to make alliances and trying to to uh, pay uh, treaties and pay or form treaties and pay uh, tribute to these other nations like Egypt perhaps or, or Assyria themselves, thinking maybe if we give them enough stuff, they'll be nice to us and they can, they can save us. And that seems to be what they're grappling with. And yet God has been saying, when you have these types of problems, come to me. I'll be the one who can protect you. I'll be the one you make an alliance with. I'll be the one who uh, who is. A far more benevolent and kind and powerful friend than Assyria or Egypt should ever be. Israel should never in their life think, oh, I know who we can get safety and protection and salvation from our enemies from Egypt. If you know the history of Israel, Egypt is a bad choice for them to be going to for alliances. But that's one of the things that they're grappling with. If you read the book of uh, Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying at the same time. That's a point that he comes to over and over again. He has to, to try to convince the king uh, not to form alliances with other nations, but to trust in the Lord. And, and so Hosea is doing that same type of thing. If you think that Egypt is a more powerful friend than Yahweh, it stems from the idea that you've forgotten Yahweh. You don't really know him. Uh, If you think that Assyria is more trustworthy than Yahweh, then you have forgotten your God. And so that's what that's if I were to boil down the main point of Hosea, it's that Uh, there are sins that they are committing, but they all stem from the root problem of having forgotten who their God was. And so what you'll see in chapter 11 is you have a child and God is a gracious and loving and present and good father. And yet the child grows up to turn out rebellious. And it's because the child doesn't know his father. The child doesn't know what the father has done for him. The child has forgotten the story. The child has forgotten about the the, the years that the father spent, uh, you know, rearing him and feeding him and, and healing him when he got hurt. And, and all of those things that a father does, that's what God has done for Israel. And Israel's forgotten that. They don't know their God. Uh, and so I want to look at Hosea chapter 11. And uh, see some things that we can learn about the father-son relationship or the, uh, the parent-child relationship. <coughs> and Hosea chapter 11 begins uh, the first verse. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea 11 is taking us back to the book of Exodus. Um, when Israel was a youth. Like the early days of Israel. Uh, where were they? <laughs> They were in Egypt. And what did God do? He called his son out of Egypt. Um, and so if you were to actually go back to the book of Exodus, you'll see that uh, God refers explicitly to Israel as his son, his firstborn. Um, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22 says, uh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. that That's the idea of, of the book of Exodus, that God's son has been enslaved by Egypt. Egypt. And so God's going to free his son. And he's telling Moses to go to Pharaoh and, and, and to free his son. Israel is pictured here as God's son. And so that's the message that Hosea begins with in chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, the, er, the early stages of these people, God loved them. Even when they were in slavery in Egypt, God loved them. And he called them out of Egypt. That's a reference to the Exodus, them coming out of Egypt. When when God, through the ten plagues, freed them from Egyptian bondage, and they left there, and they went to the wilderness, and they made a covenant at Mount Sinai, God was calling them, and he was saving them. It was an, an incredible act of grace on God's part. Because when you read through the Exodus story, you'll see that they were not strong enough to deliver themselves from the hand of Egypt. God did that for them. And you, as you read through it, you come to realize that they weren't even like righteous enough to deserve being free. It's not like they were some great holy people. In fact, shortly after leaving Egypt, they kept wanting to go back. They kept saying, oh, you brought us out in the wilderness to die. And they complained. They said, oh, things were so much better in Egypt. So in the wilderness, right after leaving Egypt, God provides for them. There's a water that they come to, but it's too bitter to drink. And they start complaining and, and they grow embittered against God. So he has Moses throw a tree basically into the water and it turns the water good and clean and drinkable. So now they have good drinkable water. And then they complain because there's not enough food. And they're in the wilderness and there is no food in the wilderness. And so what's going to happen? Well, God doesn't say you need to start working hard and you need to start growing some crops and you need to go hunting. No, what God says is I'll provide food you do nothing but trust. He rains bread from heaven for them. Uh, That's that's an intentional demonstration of the fact that God is not wanting them to be self-reliant right now. He's wanting them to be reliant on him. He's wanting them to trust in him. So he doesn't really give them a job to how to get food. He just, he doesn't give them a job for how to escape Egypt. He doesn't. He doesn't give them a job for how to to get drinking water. He doesn't uh, tell them to start digging big holes or to where to go to find water. He has Moses take his staff and hit a rock and water comes from a rock. God is demonstrating that he is providing for them. He miraculously gives them water. He miraculously gives them bread. He miraculously uh, makes the bitter water drinkable. He miraculously allows them to escape through the Red Sea. You know, he could have given them a different route out of Egypt that didn't get them trapped in a sea. There are ways to leave Egypt that don't bring you to a big body of water. God did that on purpose. In in fact, it was Pharaoh's spies who told him, "Hey, they're stuck by the water," with, that caused him to want to send his troops after them. So, like God had this whole thing planned out that He was going to give them a rather poor route out of exit out of Egypt. And when Pharaoh heard about it, he said, "Oh, they're lost in the land. They can't even get out of here. Let's go get them." Uh, and so God did that so that He could demonstrate His Majesty by splitting the Red Sea. Like every one of the things God did was to teach a lesson that. He is a powerful friend, that he is a provider, and that he loves his child. So when they were a youth, he loved them, and he demonstrates his love for them. And he did all of those things before they ever agreed to, to the law of Moses. Before he even gave them the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. It's in chapter 19 of Exodus that they arrive at Mount Sinai and uh, where, where you start finding out uh, what, what God is going to require of them. Chapter 20 is where you have the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20 through 23 is a list of all kinds of different laws and covenant uh, regulations. And then you get to chapter 24 and that's when the people agree to it. The first 23 chapters are God blessing them, saving them, providing for them, giving them things, and then laying out his stipulations. And chapter 24 is when they say, okay, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. We'll be his covenant people. Like from the very beginning, God wanted them to know that he loved them. He was graciously providing for them. That's the image of that Hosea chapter 11 starts at. It's a father who has a son. And when a child is a baby, a child does nothing for his own food. A child does nothing to defend himself. A child does nothing, like like, it's completely helpless. And it's up to the parents to provide everything for that child. Uh, The child cannot do it on his own. And I think that's what you're seeing. Israel can't get its own food. They can't free themselves from their enemies. They can't even get their own water. God does it for them over and over and over again because they're a child. And God is their parent who loves them. And so that's what Hosea begins with. Um, Quickly, uh, a little side note. Uh, When you get to chapter 11 and verse 1, that little phrase right there, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's quoted in the book of Matthew. It's quoted in an interesting way. Uh, When Jesus was a youth, he went through that exodus story himself. Uh, If you remember the Moses, how Moses was born, you had evil king Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh uh, ordered the execution of the Israelite children because he was afraid that they would grow to be such a great people that they would make an alliance with one of his enemies and they would overthrow Egypt. So he feared for his kingdom, he feared for his rule, and he ordered the execution of the young male Israelite children. When Jesus was born... There's a king named Herod who's afraid that there's uh, born of, because of some prophecies a ruler of the Jews and that if he if he allows a ruler of the Jews to grow to grow up he's going to lose his kingdom he's going to lose his throne and so out of fear he orders the execution of the children in Bethlehem. You have two very parallel stories. And what happens with Moses is he's put in a basket and he goes and he's, he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt and he's raised in Egypt. Jesus, his family, in order to flee, they go down to Egypt, and they're in Egypt until the death of Herod before they make their way back. And that happens, according to Matthew, in order to fulfill a scripture which says, "Out of Egypt I called my son." That's Hosea chapter eleven, and verse one. And so, the Exodus story is like central to Matthew's retelling of the story of Jesus and to Hosea's telling of the story of Israel, and they're they're both linked in the fact that it quotes that same passage. One of the difficulties with that is when you're reading Hosea 11.1... it doesn't sound very much like it's a prediction about Jesus. Um, it sounds like he's talking about the Exodus story. So when he says, just read it with the next verse and see if it sounds very much like Jesus. Um, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So you already should know that the son is Egypt, or, or the son is Israel. Then you get to verse 2, and it says, The more they called them, the more they went uh, fr- from them, and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Uh, you know, that's—so so Hosea, when he's talking about the Son, is talking about Israel. I think that, that's pretty clear. What Matthew's doing is he's taking—and he does this quite a bit—certain prophetic ideas and passages that are about Israel— and he applies them to Jesus. And he does that intentionally. He doesn't do that because he doesn't know his Bible. Uh, he doesn't do that because he, he you know, is just trying to find some sort of prophecy about Jesus. And he can't find any. So he says, ah, here's one. Um, I think we probably need to rethink some of what we expect prophecy to be. Prophecy in, in the New Testament, as Matthew does it, isn't always there's a prediction here and then it comes to pass here. Prophecy is often... He sees a deeper fulfillment in a passage than anyone had ever seen before. And so what Matthew does, Matthew's presenting Jesus as a new and improved Israel. And basically, what Israel fails to do, Jesus ends up doing. So the story of the exodus that Israel lived through, and they were faithless during, Jesus lives through, and he is faithful. You have that whole story that I already mentioned about the the killing of the children that Israel was going through. Jesus goes through that as well. But then as they grow, Israel ends up leaving Egypt, and they go into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus ends up leaving Egypt. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. While Jesus is in the wilderness, he's facing temptations much like the temptations that Israel that faced in in the Egyptian or in the in the wilderness. Um, in fact, Jesus will quote three passages while he's in the wilderness talking to the devil. In each of those passages, when you go back and look them up from the book of Deuteronomy, they are talking about sins Israel committed in Israel or in the wilderness, and Jesus is showing that. What Israel was supposed to learn but failed to learn, Jesus actually is doing better. Jesus has a successful wilderness experience, and he emerges victorious over Satan on the other side. Israel, however, failed over and over and over again in the wilderness, and a whole generation of people died, and it was their children who were able to enter. So, like, this is all the way through Matthew, and the other Gospels do it, too. The Israel story and a lot of passages about Israel are applied to Jesus. And I think appropriately so. Because the idea is that God called Israel with a vocation to bring about blessing to the whole world. And if you look at what most Israelites did, they did not fulfill that vocation. So the question is, did Israel fail? No, they didn't. Because there was a faithful Israelite who came, and he took on the job and the role and the vocation of Israel upon himself, and he did it for them. God called Israel to be faithful and to be a light to the nations, and they weren't. And so God himself came as an Israelite to be the light of the world, to be that light to the nations, so that he could, everywhere Israel failed, He could be the one who is faithful and the one who brings victory. And so a lot of the passages about Israel failing are applied to Jesus, particularly where Jesus succeeds. And so you see that it's an interesting dynamic, but it happens throughout Matthew. A lot of the passages, if you go back and you read them, they're not predictions about something that's going to happen in in 700 years about a Messiah, but they have fulfillment in what Jesus is doing because they were lacking on their own, and Jesus fulfilled them in a new and in a better and in in an unprecedented way. And I think you have that same thing happen here with the book of Hosea. And so this is a passage that's used to teach about the life of Jesus as well. Um, However, in Hosea 11, the son is a rebellious son. In the life of Jesus, the son is an obedient and faithful son who perfectly does the will of the Father. So it both starts off with a son that God loved that he called out of Egypt. That happened to Israel. That happened to Jesus. Israel was a rebellious son. Jesus was a faithful son. That's how he fulfills this passage. He brings new life and meaning to it. He, he takes what was lacking in it, and he makes it successful. Anyway, so that's, a, that's kind of a side point, but it's interesting to, to be able to see how the New Testament does that a lot. It's a little different than we sometimes expect The prophecies from the Old Testament to be fulfilled in the New Testament. They're not always just predictions about the future. Sometimes it's a rewriting of the story through Jesus to where you see it in a new light. But going back to Hosea chapter 11, when you get to verse 2, after finding out that God loved Israel and called Israel out of Egypt, you find out that Israel kept being unfaithful to God and going after other gods. They kept worshiping idols, and they kept worshiping Baal. Um, that's the same story that you see in the first three chapters of Hosea, only instead of a wife who's going after other husbands, it's a child who's going after other fathers. It's, it's a child who's, who's going after other gods. And uh, that first phrase in verse 2 is an interesting one. Uh, if you were to get on the internet and type in Hosea 11.2 and look up a bunch of different Bible translations, you're going to see a wide variety of ways that people translate that first phrase. Uh, it says, in my translation, see, see how closely it matches yours. I bet it's going to be a little bit different than some of yours. Hosea 11.2 says, The more they called them, the more they went from them. Is the way mine says it. I bet that's a little different than some of your Bibles uh, read, if, it's, if you're not reading the New American Standard. Um, translators struggle a little bit to know exactly what's happening there, and, and you can tell... The, interpre- the interpretation of the translator based on how they translate it. Some of your Bibles might say something like, the more he, the more God called them, like the more God called Israel, the further Israel went from them. And that's that's one possibility. That the idea is God called them out of Egypt, and He kept calling them. And it's like every time God called them to be closer to Him, they went farther from Him, and they worshipped other gods and said, "In fact, that's kind of the way that I think that it I, that I think is probably the best reading." But there are other readings as well, like. Um, the more they called them, meaning the more the idols were calling to Israel, Israel kept getting tempted and enticed by the idols. And so then they would go after the idols, and that's why they kept worshiping uh, Baal. Some uh, interpret it as the more, if you keep with that Exodus story, the more they called them, meaning the more Israel called Egypt like as israel was leaving egypt they kept calling out back to egypt and they do that a bunch but the more they called them because of the love of god they still kept getting further and further away from egypt and they were farther from slavery yet they continued to want to go back to egypt and they kept sacrificing to the baals and they kept there's there are a number of different uh readings of that but The main point at the end of the day is that God is being a loving father to them and they are growing farther from him and they are worshiping other gods in the process. They're growing closer to other gods and farther from God. Even though, verse 3, and this is really, this is kind of a heart-rending picture a little bit uh, because it makes me, I mean, especially some passages in the Bible after having kids, you just read them a little bit differently. You have them... You have a better experience with it. When it says, But it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and it was I who took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So you have a couple of images used right there. One is of a father, and you can imagine holding the toddler by the hand and teaching that, that kid to walk. God's like, That's what I did with Israel. You're like, I loved Israel. And you know, there's, there's something when, when you're a father and you come home from work and your kid's happy to see you. And it's like you pick them up in your arms. God said, that was me. I held them in my arms. I held them by the arm. I, like, we, I, I loved Israel. They were, they were my son. I, I taught them how to walk. I held them in my arms. And when they fell and scraped their knee, I, I healed them. He says, but they did not know that I healed them. They did not know. That's our key idea that we started off talking about at the beginning. They don't know. They they think maybe we healed ourselves. Maybe it was was the idols that we're worshiping that healed us. Maybe they're who brought the rain that that healed our crops. And all of a sudden, when God does things for them, they think that it's the others. Um, In chapter 2 in verse 8, going back to the idea of of Gomer, when she leaves after other lovers, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 8, This is God speaking about his wife. This is Hosea speaking about Gomer saying, For she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the new uh, wine and the oil and lavished her with silver and gold, which they used for Baal. It's like his wife... He provided a roof, he provided clothes, he gave her as good a food as he could, He, he provided, and yet she went after the other lovers and thanked them for those things. Uh, that's an image that we have Gomer doing in the early chapters, and that's being repeated here, saying God was the one who taught them to walk and held them in his arms and healed them, and yet they didn't even know. They gave thanks and worship and sacrifice to the other gods. Verse 4 God continues to describe himself as a loving father. I led them with cords of, of, of a man with bonds of love. And I came to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and I fed them. It's like God lifted the yoke of slavery from them. God uh, was the one who provided food for them. You could see that with Samana in the wilderness. Like God was the one who led them out of Egypt with love. He lifted the yoke of slavery off them. He fed them when they were hungry. And yet, verse 5, they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king. So if you remember, as God is doing all of that in the Exodus story, as he's lifting the yoke of slavery, as he's leading them with love out of Egypt, as he's feeding them, they keep saying, we want to go back to Egypt. That was their wish. And God says, "So well, you're not going to go back to Egypt. Assyria is the one who's going to punish you now. Um, a father who loves his son, and then the son grows up to reject and rebel against the father. Sometimes there's, there is anger, there's resentment, there's frustration. And I think you start to see that with, with God looking at Israel. He loves Israel, but Israel keeps being a disobedient child. It's time for punishment. When he says they will not return to the land of Egypt... That is um, a play on what he's been doing earlier in the book of Hosea. So look back with me, just a couple of verses. Um, we'll look at a few verses to, uh, to get there. If you look at chapter 7 in verse 11, you get that idea here. Um, he says, so Ephraim has, like, has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. Uh, what he's saying there is basically they are calling on Egypt for help instead of God. They're going to Assyria for help instead of going to God. This is their problem with foreign alliances. And they're putting more trust in Egypt and in Assyria than they are their God. Uh, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 7, he says, they turn but not upward. It's like they're turning, but they're looking around horizontally for help. They're not looking upward for help. They're looking to their neighbors and the other nations. He says, they are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Um, so he's going to start talking about Egypt as being a place of punishment. Egypt has become symbolic for them of slavery, of misery, of uh, a lack of freedom where they don't have their promised land because that's what Egypt represents in Israel. If you look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 8, chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and they eat it. But the ta- Lord has no delight in them. He will remember uh, their iniquity. He will punish their sin. They will return to Egypt. So again, Egypt is symbolic of of they're going to go. If that's what they've wanted to do their whole existence, if they keep wanting, fine, they're going to go back to Egypt. Um, and so because of their sinfulness, God's not delighting in their sacrifices. Egypt is where they're heading. If you look at chapter 9 and verse 3. It says, they will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. And so notice that uh, you can see there he has the symbolic Egypt along with the literal Assyria. He says, they will return to Egypt in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. what 's going to happen is they 're going to end up being taken captive by Assyria. Assyria is going to demolish uh, Samaria, which is the capital city he 's going to end up uh, destroying northern Israel and Assyria will be the dominating power and they 're going to go to Assyria. But as they 're getting closer to that he 's reminding them that their story' coming full circle. They left Egypt. They were slaves there, and they left, and God gave them freedom. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. Well, they're going to, although Egypt has a new name now. Egypt is now Assyria, and that's where you guys are going to be going. Um, If you look at um, chapter 9 and verse 6, it says, For behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Uh, And so over and over again, Egypt is being described as where they're going. But when you get to chapter 11 and verse 5, here... He is reversing the symbolism and giving them the the literal description of what's about to happen. Even though he earlier said they will return to Egypt, now he says it's not actually Egypt they're going to return to. But Assyria, he will be their king because they have refused to return to me. Um, The idea of where they turn is is an important one god is calling them but they're turning towards other gods they are uh, instead of looking upwards they're turning left to right to try to find who's going to save them here god is saying they're going to Egypt, they're going to um to assyria because that's that's in essence who they've turned to uh they're going they, they think assyria is a better ally than the lord so they're going to end up going to assyria what that's going to look like is in verse six The sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gates, uh, their gate bars and consume them because of their counsel. Um, Saying basically your gates aren't going to protect you. The sword is going to freely come whirling through your city and your own counsel will be the reason for your demise. Because you have not consulted and because your counsel didn't lead you to God, your counsel has led you to destruction. So verse 7 So my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. They are called to God. They are called to return to God. Yet none of them return to him. They all turn to the others. They turn to the other gods. They turn to the other nations. They're a rebellious son. God loved them. He held them in his arms. He taught them to walk. He freed them as a youth. He gave them everything they could want. He gave them the promised land. And yet they've consistently, repeatedly, over and over again rejected him, turned to other gods, turned to other nations. And so what's going to happen? Well, They're going to be wiped out. At least you think. You think this is going to be the end of their relationship. Because they had a covenant. They absolutely, 100%, over and over again failed to keep it. But God is a loving father. The passage doesn't end right there. What you come to find out is even though they deserve this utter destruction, God still looks at them like his son that he loves. It wasn't just when they were a youth that God loved them. Even now in their rebellion, God loves them. This passage reminds me a little bit of the story of the prodigal son, uh, who he, he absolutely had no right to come back to his father's house as a son. He, he even recognized that. I'll come back as a servant or something because I have rejected him, I've turned away from him, and I've squandered all of the gifts that he gave me. But then he comes back and what does the father do? The father receives him back. The very next verse, when you get to verse eight, is God's, after seeing what they have done and what their future holds, God begins to say, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? And how can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? Or how can I treat you like Zeboim? Um, Adama and Zeboim are... So we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah as the, the two cities that were destroyed back there in Genesis uh, 18 and 19. Um, but there were actually five cities that were going to be destroyed. One of them ended up being saved because that's where Lot went. But four cities were destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah, but then also uh, Admah and Zeboim were the other two that were destroyed. And so that Genesis reference to the destruction of those cities, he's looking at Israel and he's saying, but how can you become like that to me? It's like, how can I give up on you? You're my son, and I love you, and we've been with each other for so long, and I taught you to walk, and I remember that, and I held you in my arms, and I remember that. How can I give up on you? Verse 8 continues, God says, my heart is turned over within me, and my compassions are kindled. It's like, it's not based on the fact that they're good and, and repenting, and now they've become righteous people. It's based on the fact that God just really loves them, And his heart is turning within him when he thinks about the destruction that's coming their way, and his compassions for them are kindled because he loves them. And so, verse 9, he says, I will not execute my fierce anger, I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am a God and not man. You know, as much as human beings are capable of love, we're also capable of some pretty harsh vengeance. We're also capable of cutting people off and, and not being willing to forgive, not being willing to overlook their shortcomings. And God, it's, it's, it, to me, chapter 11 and verse 9 is a really important reminder about who God is. Because Some people walk around day after day with the idea that God is the one who's going to be vengeful towards them uh, because of their failures or because of their sins. Or that God is just waiting for people to sin so that in his just and righteous anger, he can unleash his fury upon them. But what God says is, but I'm not a man. I'm not like that. I actually love, and my love doesn't go away. He says, like, my love doesn't, no matter how many times you sin against me, I still love them. I'm not a man. I'm God, and my compassions are still kindled towards them, even though they don't deserve it. Even though their entire history has been one of rebellion. They've been trying to go back to Egypt from the beginning, and yet I'm still going to be their God He says, I will not execute my uh, fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am a God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So as you keep looking at the story of Israel, you do see that punishment comes. They they are punished by Assyria. You do see that uh, there is destruction. You do see that they rejected God, and punishment is absolutely a part of that. But you also see, and you see this at the end of the book of Hosea, God never intends to give up on Israel. God will never give up on his people. Uh, even, Even when they sin against him over and over again, God continues to be their God. And through Jesus, he brings about the blessings that he's always had in store for Israel. And through Jesus, he doesn't get rid of Israel, what he does is he expands Israel to include the whole rest of the world who are now welcome to join into the family of Israel. And like throughout the whole story of the Bible, it's a story of people who are undeserving, rebellious children and adulterous wives who continually reject and turn against God. And yet even when you think he has no reason anymore to Maintain a covenant with them, or to maintain loyalty towards them, or to forgive them, he does because he's not a man; he's capable of far more love and compassion than we are. You know, God's better than us at everything. I think that includes love, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. Um, don't ever think that you're more graceful than God is. Uh, that that sometimes you know there's. We could be tempted to doubt the goodness of God or his grace. Passages like this always remind me, though, God is good towards his people, even when undeserving. And uh, Hosea 11 is, is to me a beautiful picture of like the undying love of a father towards a son. Even when the son has become rebellious, God still loves his son. Um, you know, I, I often quote from Exodus 34 where after God saves everyone from Egypt, after they uh, make the covenant at Sinai, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and the children of Israel make that golden calf, and they worship that instead. And they immediately reject the covenant that they made. And yet, what God has Moses do is not destroy the people, or is not to uh, find a new people. Rather, what ends up happening is he rewrites the covenant. <laughs> he rewrites the commandments, and, and they just start over. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why would God do that? And God gives an answer. The answer is rooted in his very own character and nature. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, slow to ang- uh, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, one who maintains loving kindness towards thousands. Uh, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the parents to the children and to the grandchildren of the second and third generation. But you read through that passage, and the idea you get is God is a God of steadfast love, whose love lasts for thousands of generations. There is punishment. That will happen. That happens in this story. But the punishment tends to be short-lived, two to three. The loving kindness is for thousands. Uh, And so even in the book of Hosea, which is a difficult book, you still see, even in the darkest moments, the love of God shining through. Um, I think that that, for me, is an important reminder. It's a wonderful idea to carry with you. That the God of heaven is not against you. The God of heaven, even for the most rebellious is still rooting for them, is still loving towards them, still wants to maintain relationship with them. And that's the offer that he has for every one of us. Uh, If there's anyone here tonight, when you're looking at your life and you think, well, I haven't always turned to God as I should. Sometimes I put other things above him, whether it's um, other nations or other gods or whether it's just my selfishness or my money or my my, uh, entertainment. Like we can look at our lives and we can see that we can fall prey to the same traps. God still wants, you're still his son and come back home to the father who loves you. Uh, If there's any way that we can help you do that, please let that be known and come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.